Dear Father, I'm glad I get to be with my family today. People I love, people that I know love you. I'm grateful today that we get to gather on a beautiful summer day to start our day right, to focus our minds on you, to make sure our hearts are in the right place. Lord God, it's going to be a beautiful summer. We're going to have a lot of experiences along the way that are going to be great, but help us not to take a vacation from you. Help us not to miss these moments to gather together, to be in your presence, to be with other people who love you, and to keep growing. Growth never takes a vacation. And we look forward to the way that you're going to grow us this summer together. In Jesus' name, amen. I have no idea how enthused we are to see everybody here. We've come to worship in community and learn in community and be the church. So what we'd like to ask you to do is introduce yourself to some of the community. Just kind of open your circle up a little bit. Pass out handshakes and hugs and high fives, and we're going to continue to worship together. Go for it. Lord Jesus, we give you all of our applause, all of our attention, all of our affection, because you and you alone could have freed me. From the chains that that once bound me, God, we thank you for everything that you've given us and that you continually give this morning as we as we spend it together. Lord, I pray that you would make yourself alive in our lives, in our lives through your word and through your spirit. We love you and you have all of us in your name. We pray and everybody who believed it said, Amen. amen. Thank you for worshiping. You can have a seat. It is good to see you. My name is Dennis and uh, I told Justin he came out to see me. I almost wore that shirt today, which would have been, oh my word, you'd have thought we'd had a church uniform or something going on. Kind of scary. It was my week to borrow it, so there that's right. <laughs> Woo! Uh, hey, happy Father's Day to you dads, and that may be some of you are males, and honestly, some of you who are females that have had the job of raising your, your kids as a dad. We appreciate the job you do. We'll be honoring you more in a minute, but before we do, I wanted to uh, break into... We're really where we're going this morning, where we're going this summer. If you were with us last week, we, you know that we, we've started a new tradition. In the summer, we're going to dive. We're calling this Dive 2011. Next year, 2012. Exactly. And we're going to use it to focus in on a book of the Bible or a theological topic, something that just requires some extra study. We're taking the next 10 weeks, and we're going to be looking at this uh, four-chapter letter of the Bible known as Philippians. In these four chapters, Paul talks about the word joy or some form of it 16 times. And the reason we're going here is we all need to remember that that God has given us an excuse to smile, to be reminded that that our our faith should be showing through on our faces. Uh, Last week we saw in Acts chapter 16 that Paul didn't just write about joy. He didn't just talk about joy. He lived it out. I mean, here's a guy, he's in shackles in a dungeon next to his partner, and at midnight, he just starts to sing and pray along with the person he's with. A real expression of joy. And we saw in that passage that all the other prisoners were listening. All the other prisoners were watching. And the same is true in our lives. When you're in your prison, 
When you're stuck in your shackles, when the junk of your life is going on, other people are watching. They're wondering, is your response going to be different because you're a Christ follower? Last week we talked about this as the theme, not only for that message, but really for the whole series, that pure joy finds a way to smile despite the most severe circumstances. No matter what's going on in your life, you may not be happy because happy is circumstantial, but you can always be joyful because joy goes way beyond circumstances. And we looked at a quote by a a famous British Bible teacher, and I just want to bring it on the screen one more time. I, I love what he said. Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. And we want to make sure that people aren't looking at us and going, man, I don't want what they've got. I need to look somewhere else. I've got to keep shopping. And he went on to say the the joy of the early church is part of what made it so attractional to people. Part of what caused people to say, my goodness, this guy is about to be martyred for Christ and he's smiling while it's happening. What in the world is going on with these people? I hope you brought your smile today. A lot of you used it on at the door as you said hi. You know, it was there. And we don't often think about smiling during a sermon. It does help. I mean, actually, it helps me to preach a lot faster when you smile. (laughs) Anyway, um, I want to give you a reason to smile, uh, to celebrate our dads. Got a little clip for you here. Have some fun with it. Here we go. This is dead life. It's how we live 24 7, 365. Check me. Gas station glasses, don't care what the masses think about me with my sweet goatee. I'm rocking my doctors with a cuff and a crease. I got that St. John's bank and the clip for my piece. I look nice. I got dozens of dollars and that's right. It goes straight to my daughters and my wife. I'm a miracle dad, making magic with the checkbook is the talent I have. I roll hard in the yard with a 60-inch cut. Zero turn radius, my neighbors say, what? They be driving by, peeping my landscape. Yo, these greens got nothing on my manscape. Hydrangeas, begonias, crepe myrtles, ornamental turtles. Hold up. Is that a weed in my fescue? Oh, no. Round up to the rescue. It's the dad life. It's the dad life. Take my daughter to the party. It's the dad life. It's the dad life. It's the dad life. Shooting bibs of the kids. It's the dad life. Roll up to the splash pad. 10 a.m. My whole entourage hops out the minivan. We splishy splashy for an hour or two. Then it's back to the house, yeah. prepping for the barbecue. Brocks, dogs, raccoons, whatever. Get me on the Weaver, man, nobody does it better. Call me Lord of the Grill, I'm king of the coals. Nana secret recipe, you know how I roll. 1080p, 16 by 9. I'm rocking man cave status with a screen like mine. Keep your peanut butter hands off my 50 inch video. Pop up the corn, roll the Disney video. We got Aladdin, Jasmine, Abu, the genie. With kids like mine, everybody wants to be me. Sing the moonlight song and then it's off to bed. This is the dad life, no more to be said. It's the dad life, it's the dad life. 
Hit the mall, coaching ball. It's the dad life. It's the dad life. It's the dad life. Playing rough, fixing stuff. It's the dad life. It's the dad life. It's the dad life. Yeah, you know how we do it. It's the dad life. Well, what do you think? Closing prayer, go home. I'm inspired, man. That's good stuff. I would like you to join me in prayer right now. God, when your son came to earth to let us know who you are, to to introduce us to you in a whole new way. And his disciples asked, how should we talk to God? You began by saying, begin with these words. Our Father in heaven. I mean, of all the things he could have said, of all the things he could have called you, he said, Our Father in heaven. I'm grateful that he used those words. I'm sad that in modern times that word gets tainted sometimes by the way dads act. I'm grateful that we have a bunch of dads here who show what God looks like by being a good father. And I pray that you would inspire us as men to live as men who help not only their kids, but kids everywhere to see what God looks like. God, I pray that that would be be the vision for our lives. That we'd say when, when someone prays our Father, that image would be a positive image. Because they know some people who are living out what it means to be a real godly man. I thank you so much for the men in our family, in our church family. And God, I pray whether they have a child or not, you would help them be a godly father. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to play it again. <laughs> oh, this is good stuff. It'll be on the blog. In fact, I want to remind you, I know vacations are here. And, you know, when we're doing a series, you might miss an installment. It's on the podcast. We'll make sure videos are up so, that you, so you don't miss a thing. I tell you what, when I think of the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote Philippians, there are a lot of words that come to my mind. I mean, he is brilliant. He's a brilliant theologian. There's no question about it. He's a professor's professor. When I get to heaven, I'm signing up for every class Paul offers, and I'm going to be first in line. I want to be there. I want to hear him. He's all in. There is no question of this man's boldness. You don't wonder where he stands when you're reading his books. You know exactly where he stands. He's passionate. He has a huge heart for God, a huge heart for the church. He has a huge heart for making disciples, just like Jesus said he's supposed to. There is one term that applies to him that you might be surprised that I use. There are times in Paul's life when he was lonely. When he, when he experienced some real heart-rending loneliness, Paul knew what it was like to stand alone, and Paul knew what it was like to be alone. In fact, we hear it at the end of 2 Timothy. I, I've put the passage here on the screen, and I, I just want you to see excerpts from this. He's in prison. He is very lonely in that place. He says, Timothy, please come to me as soon as you can. He's desperate. For someone to be there. He says, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Luke's here. Bring Mark. I need some more people with me. 
says Tychicus has gone to Ephesus. And then in verse 14, he talks about this guy, Alexander the coppersmith. And he says, this guy's done me dirt. It's been hard to handle what he did to me. And then verse 16, it's, it's just heartbreaking to hear these words. He says, the first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. The Apostle Paul. And we complain sometimes that nobody's there for us in our hard times. The Apostle Paul is saying, when I was taken into court, no one, no one was there with me. I was alone. Paul feels the full weight. He feels the full weight of being alone. He knows what loneliness is. Loneliness is uh, an overwhelming element of modern life. It's part of the times in which we live. So many people feel painfully lonely. I promise you, even today, here in the crowd, there's someone saying, I wish everybody knew how lonely I feel. I just feel alone in this place right now. And it's really kind of hard to believe. We have so many ways to stay connected. I mean, we, can instant, we have instant messaging, we have emailing, we have Facebooking and texting and Twittering and Gwalling and Foursquaring, all these things that help us to be connected. We have, we have our friends on Facebook, we have our, our connections, our followers on Twitter, and yet with all of these connections, honestly, people just feel more alone and disconnected perhaps than ever. You know, I still remember the first time I was, at, I was at Willow Creek and I heard Bill Hybels say of the human condition, every person wants this. They want to know and be known. They want to love and be loved. They want to serve and be served. They want to celebrate and be celebrated. And as I think about those terms, I can't help but believe that all this social media is about one in four. We want people to know what's going on in our life, and we want people to celebrate with us. We want someone to cheer. We want someone to know that we're out there. We exist, yet for all the tweeting and all the status updates, loneliness prevails. We feel the full weight of our aloneness, and we don't like it. We've experienced a a real generational shift, a shift toward seclusion. I mean, think about the difference between life when Dennis was eight and a generation later. A biblical generation is 40 years. Think about the difference between these two times. People used to sit on the front porch I mean, I'd go up and down my street. Everybody was on the front porch. Now, back deck, hide away from people. I don't want to be out front. We had the windows in our house open. We had the windows in our car open. You could hear everything that was going on. Now everything, climate control. I don't, people could be screaming that they needed help. I feel cool at 72. You know, I just, we, we want the climate right. When our family used to get home from church or from a place that we were driving, there was a little fight. Who's going to get out and open the garage door? And somebody would well, go and open it. These days, bat cave. Boom, bzz, bzz. You see the car, you see the car come and go, and, and you don't have to talk to or say hi to anybody accidentally. You know, it's quite probable today, I want you to think about it, it's quite probable that you know by name and face Less than five people on your street. Possible. I was thinking about me growing up. I knew the names and faces of every person on my street. 24 houses in all. I knew them all. Now, it was easier. I was eight. A lot of them were Mr. and Mrs. So I didn't have to memorize all the names. But I knew everyone was there. If I went to the store and I saw my neighbor, I knew who it was. These days, I could be reaching for the same gallon of milk and I wouldn't know that it's the person that lives two doors down. Totally different. And that's not just true of this street, the street before and the street before. I mean, this has been part of modern life. 
You know, when we try to connect with people, they get suspicious. Invite your neighbors over. What do you sell, Amway? Are you one of those pampered chef people? What do you want? Suspicion immediately arises. They're waiting for the DVD to go into the, into the machine, and here we go. It's time for the presentation. They don't know what to do when you just say, we just wanted to be friendly. Oh, what is that? I forget. How, how about at home? Family dinners. A meal at a table without a television. There's a study that says it's down by 33%. I don't know how they perform that study. I mean, you know, really went from house to house. But here's the thing. Common sense does tell us that with the schedules of today, families are fragmenting. They're fragmenting in a way that they didn't before, which leads to further isolation, even in the home. How about what we're doing right here, right now? Do you know that people in my church growing up used to cook extra food because it was inevitable they were going to invite someone over after church? It was going to happen. It was part of the plan. I mean, it was just, it was, it was a given. You were going to someone's house or you were having someone over. And you know what? I suspect there are a few people even here today saying, I would love that. And we wait for someone to invite us. Well, we're not going to initiate, but we wait and we walk away disappointed because it didn't happen. Loneliness prevails in 2011. People feel very alone. Now, we could spend the whole morning dissecting the sociological reasons for the transition. We could assess the damage. We could address the cures. But I just wanted to start today by saying it's real. People in our society feel lonely. People in the church are feeling the impact of isolation. The loneliness hurts, and honestly, it's not the way God wanted life to be. In fact, just the opposite. He created relationships for the purpose of transformation and life change. Don't you think it's part of the, of the enemy's scheme to make sure that relationships are broken? If it's one of, its greatest, if it's one of God's greatest tools for growing people? Loneliness is magnified in modern life, there's no question. But it wasn't invented in our times. In this passage, in Philippians, in 2 Timothy, and in other places, we hear the crying loneliness of Paul. We hear a man who is in a dungeon, who is in shackles, who is longing to be with his friends, who just missed human contact with people that he knew loved him and they loved him him as well. Loneliness, isolation, abandonment, heartbreak and betrayal and rejection, just being left out and feeling overlooked. These can all rob us of joy. Nobody smiles when they're lonely. It hurts. We want friends. It can wipe the smile off of our faces. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. This week we're going to zero in on on a fact uh, that, that may not feel good at the time, but it's true. It is this, that loneliness is a tool God uses to force our roots deeper into partnership with him. Loneliness is actually a tool God uses. It's not something that he hopes to completely eradicate. It's a tool he uses to force us to get our roots to go down deeper so that we actually experience a better connection with him. Now, we've already mentioned that one of the great and obvious themes of of this book of Philippians is joy. There's a second theme that presents itself as well, and that is partnership. Paul makes many references to the partnering relationship that he has with the Philippians, 
to the ones that the Philippians have with each other and to one that all of them have with God through Christ Jesus. There's a lot of talk about this partnership. It's a letter about real friendship, not just buddies who hang out, but deep partnership in the cause of Christ. And this morning, I just I want to dive into a, a clear understanding of what spiritual partnership is all about. What does it look like? If I'm a spiritual partner, not just a dinner companion, but if, if you and I are spiritual partners, what does that look like? So you need to look at uh, Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to put it here on the screen, or you can use your Bible as well. We're looking at verses 3 to 11 of the first chapter. And, and, and we see this. First of all, partners have history. Partners have history. Uh, I, I know you're saying, I want to get there fast, but, but the fact is, y- you can't have a partner instantly. It just doesn't work that way. Very real partnerships take time to bake. Every human relationship, not just boyfriend, girlfriend ones, every human relationship goes through an infatuation stage. It goes through a stage where you go, wow, I really like you so much. And then after a while, the relationship starts to deepen and grow. It inevitably takes time. We we have uh, three couples this summer who are going to be getting married. That's cool. It's going to be a, fun to be a part of those those wedding days. Two of them right now, Kyle and Maria, are, are actually uh, leading our kids' ministry. And Justin's going to be performing the wedding. I did get that right. You are doing it. Yeah, okay. Just don't want to get the facts wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the bad dreams I have that I'm sitting at a funeral and the director comes up and says, it's time. And I go, what? Who is it? So anyway, I, it's good to know that you're doing a wedding or a funeral. Anyway, they're getting married in a couple of weeks. They've been boyfriend, girlfriend for a while. The relationship has been growing. Kim and I have been married 25 years. Can you imagine them saying, wow, I wish we could just jump straight to 25. Have what you do at 25 years. Well, you can. 25 years from now, you can be where we are. It takes time to bake. You can't get there instantly. Too many of us want a partner today. It doesn't work that way. They had a history. It took time for it to develop. It's part of the modern problem. We love microwaves and fast bake. We love drive-up windows. We love instantaneous. But real partnership takes time to develop. Look at, look at verse 3. Every time I think of you, this is one of the most beautiful verses in the New Testament. I love it. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God for you. Every time I think of you, I, I thank God. Now, that wasn't just empty thanks. He had reason to give thanks. They had a history together. They, they had done some things together that caused him to have positive memories They had time that had developed their relationship. It's hard to think of someone affectionately when you don't even know them. It takes time. And then again, for some friendships, unfortunately, the best day is the first day. And all goes downhill from there, but we'll leave that alone for another time. (laughs) Paul has thankful thoughts about this group of people. It gives him joy in his loneliness. He has thankful thoughts about these people because they have a positive history and it gives him pure joy to think of them while he's in a really bad place. Now look a little further in the passage. He says, Whenever I pray, I make requests for all of you with joy for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ From the time you first heard until now. I mean, he's saying, we have some history. We've done some life together. We've shared in a common cause together. We looked at it last week. We looked at the first day 
of the Philippian church in Acts 16. When Paul arrives in town, he can't go to a synagogue. There is no synagogue. He goes down to the river. There are some people gathered, and he starts to speak, and Lydia agrees, yes, that's the gospel. She's in. She gets baptized. A little later, a Philippian jailer, what do I need to do to be saved? Paul Paul and Silas explain it before you know it. He's being baptized. He's in. That was the first day, and he says, from the first day I knew you until this day, sitting here in prison, you bring me joy. Memories of you bring me joy. Partners have history. Now, what does that mean for us? Hey, history doesn't happen instantaneously. It's going to take some time. We need to make some investments in our relationships. At the very least, we need to make a time investment. If you're hoping for partners, but you're always too busy, you won't have any. There's got to be a time investment, but really beyond that, there has to be a heart investment, a development of oneness around a common person and a common person, that being Christ. Uh, Some of the greatest partnerships that happen in church life don't happen at a potluck. They happen in serving together. When we serve together, we start to develop partnerships together. So partners have history. Let me give you the second thing. Partners have supernatural power. There's a supernatural power behind this partnership. One of my favorite verses, verse 6. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Some of you may know it more like, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's something supernatural going on here. I love it. It says, God who started the good thing in you is the same God who's going to bring to the finish line the good thing that's happening in you. I think we have a misconception about the way the Christian life works. We think God saves us and then we do all the rest of the work. God saves us and then and we just got to make sure we get ourselves the rest of the way to heaven. That's not what this verse says. The verse says the God who brought you into the family is the God who empowers you to keep changing. He's the one doing the work in you. It's not what I'm doing. It's what he's doing in me. This verse says start to finish. It's all God. You may ask, okay, so what does that have to do with partnerships? Well, there's a divine element to to them. They're not just based on natural elements. It literally isn't just about do we schedule enough time together or take vacations to the same place. A real Christ-centered partnership is empowered by God. He makes it happen. He drives it. And honestly, he sets the agenda for it. He's the one setting the, the agenda for our friendship. Now, I'm not suggesting that every friendship moment has to open and close in prayer. That's, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. You don't just simply spiritualize it that way. But here's the basic idea. Think about your current friendships. Do they make you more like Jesus or less like Jesus? What do you look like? Are you better because of them or worse because of them? Here's, let me put it another way. Do you have to bury or shelve your values when you're with your friends? Do you have to say, I won't be like I am right now because I'd be the wet blanket of the group? And so I'll, and so I'll go ahead and be someone else for now so everybody else will be happy with my presence? Real partnerships have a palpable, distinct, sweet sense of God in them. There is a sweet sense of God in these kinds of partnerships. God is using this person in my life, and I'm being used in the other person's life to bring God's agenda to completion in them. 
It's God who's got the agenda for me. It's God who's got the agenda for you. And I'm helping to be a part of completing God's agenda. You know the problem with most of our friends? We have an agenda for them. We know what we want for them. It doesn't matter what we want for them. What does God want for them? I'm there to help them to fulfill God's agenda. There's this supernatural power. God is using our relationship as a tool. He's empowering that relationship to bring us closer to him by bringing us closer to each other. Third thing about partners that we see in this passage is that partners share. Look at this this verse, verse 7. So it is right that I should feel as I do about you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me in the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in and defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you, and I long for you with tender compassion in Christ Jesus. What sweet words. You have a special place in my heart. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying of you, you have a special place in my heart. Why was that special place there? They, they, they had shared They had shared. Shared what? Well, they shared good times and they shared bad times. They were with them in the prison and they were with them in the joyful moments at all. They they were there in the advancement of the gospel. They stood for truth together. Paul is saying something here that I just don't want you to miss. Another way they they shared, this partnership was not a one-way street. It It was mutual. Paul had shared with them, and they had shared with Paul. Though he is an apostle and teacher, a superior, if you will, it's not always Paul who gives and they get. It's not the way it works in this passage. They shared. He gives and he receives. They give and they receive. They give and receive together. At times for us, it seems like a a budding relationship dies on the vine, and we have to ask why. What happened there? Well, it's because it it wasn't a partnership as much as it was a parasitic relationship. One person was serving as 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 the parasite, the leech, and the other was serving as the host. And I don't know if you've ever been a host. After a while, you just want to shake that thing off. You know, it just, it just doesn't feel good when the relationship is always one way. That's not the way partnerships work. Partnerships work both ways. Those relationships, those, those parasitic relationships, they don't grow into partnerships. Partnerships are mutual. They're reciprocal. I have your back and you have mine. When I'm hurting, you're hurting. And when you're celebrating, I'm celebrating. We share life. We're woven together. The relationship is not one-sided. We're real partners. Real partners share. And here's the last one. And you see this in verses 9 and following. Partners pray. Partners pray because they want God's best for the other person. How would you ask yourself, in your agenda with your friends, is high on your list, I want for you what God wants for you. I think high on our list is you want to go to Hacienda or McDonald's. But is high on your list, I want for you what God wants for you. And I hope you're saying you want for me what God wants for me. And we pray that into being. Listen to this prayer. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ Jesus, until his return. 
May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Again, you just you see this supernatural element to this friendship. This is why this this partnership is more than just being buddies. Paul wished God's best for them in prayer. He prayed that their love would grow. He prayed that their knowledge and understanding would grow. He prayed that they would care about what really matters. He prayed that they would be blameless and pure. He prayed that they would bear much fruit. He prayed for their character. Partners, real partners, pray for each other. Why do they do that? Because we want God's agenda to be fulfilled in the other person's life. I'd encourage you to take that passage. Pray it for your friends. Pray it for your kids. Paul's already put the words out there. Pray it for them. Be in line with God. You're saying, I want to see God's agenda fulfilled in you. Part of my prayer, personal prayer journal, is two pages of verses that I pray for my friends. Because while I'd love for them to get a new car and a bigger house and, uh, you know, their jet ski so that I can borrow it and all that stuff, while I'd love for that to happen, what I really want is that ultimately God, they are what God wants. And the reason I'm in their life is to help see that fulfilled. That's why we're together. That's why we're partners. A true partnership, it, it, it's, just, it's so fulfilling. And as we've seen with Paul, it's a great source of joy. He's in prison and he begins by saying, you know what, these shackles are chafing my wrists and ankles right now and thinking of you makes me joyful this moment i'm able to focus on you and there's something good going on inside of me these kinds of partnerships are amazing partnerships are great we have a history of doing great things for god and and journeying with god together we have god's power growing in us so as we grow together We share good times and bad times. It's mutually beneficial. We pray for each other, wanting God's agenda for each other, not just our own. And, and, you know, I know you're hearing this and some of you are saying, wow, that's what I've been looking for. I want a real partner. That's what I want. I'm glad you do. And know that if you want that and you don't have it now, it's possible that some things in your life have to be adjusted. For example, um, we can't have partners and refuse to grow roots. You know, if, if you like revolving door church about every two and a half years, you want to see what the other place is doing, you'll never get beyond, hi, what's your name? You've you got to dig your roots into a community of believers. You've got to spend some time in a place and really let your roots grow down. Now, that's not a given. You can be in a place for 15 years and not have a friend. But you've got to dig your roots down in a place. Other things, I mean, you can't have partners If you refuse to fix misunderstandings, if your idea of a friendship is, we never fight, everything's always perfect, we've never had a disagreement. You know what that means? Somebody's stuffing their opinion. I'm sorry, it's not the magic you think. Somebody is just going, I'll eat my opinion, we'll do it your way again. That's what's going on, because... You know, if you're married, you you realize this, I think, don't you? (laughs) If you're not married, you watched us. You you, you know the way this works. I mean, any time you're in a relationship, there will be disagreements. And and I I laugh because these days I want to do a whole sermon series on this, so I'm sorry I'm blowing it ahead of time, but etch-a-sketch people. Or etch-a-sketch is great. Oh, I didn't like that drawing. 
want clean slate. Oh, I don't like that French. Oh, good. I can draw a new one. Come on. You don't get to be partners if every time you have a disagreement, you throw the person away like a foam cup. You shouldn't throw away foam cups. But anyway, you, you, you can't do that. You've got to get through the junk. Getting through the junk is what helps you to become a partner and not just a person that's sitting with you at a ball game. You get it? I mean, you've you got to do the hard work. But, but here's the thing. Even if you get this kind of partnership going, I believe even then there will be times that you will experience seasons of loneliness. Paul had these kinds of partnerships, and Paul still had seasons of, lo- of, of loneliness. And you say, what in the world is that all about? Loneliness is a tool God uses to force our roots into deeper partnership with him. While God wants you to have great human connections, his ultimate desire is that our human connections will draw us into better relationship with him. The human relationships are not an end in themselves. He wants our human relationships to draw us into a deeper connection with him, who is our only true and lasting source of joy. You will never find everything you're looking for in another human being. It just won't happen. The only true and lasting source of joy is God. And there are times that God will send maybe a moment or a season of loneliness into your life. And you're going, what am I doing wrong? You know, what's with my breath? What's going on? Why don't people want to be around me? I don't think it's a curse. I don't think it's because you necessarily did something bad. I think it's because God's saying, if I were your only friend, would that be enough? Because in a sense, he is our only true friend. He's the only one that will never betray us. He will never disappoint us. He will never let us down. If I were your only friend, would I be enough? Can you hear God in your lonely season right now saying, am I enough? You really have to have all the noise or am I enough? You say you want a relationship with me. Am I enough? That's what this is all about. I think God wants you to have partners. I do. I think your partners are the tools that lead to lasting change. But loneliness is a tool, too. It's not just a curse. It's a tool. It's a tool that sometimes causes us to reevaluate what's the friendship all about. And it's a tool that causes us to evaluate what are we all about. And it ultimately pushes us to say, I pick God. He picked me. I pick him, too. That's where I want my friendship to grow the deepest. Let's talk to our Father right now. I don't know, God. There are are those of us, we have have a personality that likes being quiet. We we enjoy those moments of um, solitude. But I don't know that there's really a a well-adjusted human being that says, boy, I just love loneliness. It's the best. I, I love never being with people. If I could just live on a desert island, it would be the happiest place in the world. There's something in us that wants to connect with others. 
And I pray that the, maybe the lonely season that we're experiencing right now, it would push us to do two things. One, it would help us to evaluate, are we really pursuing partnerships or do we just have a bunch of uh, ballpark buddies in our lives? Are we really partners with other people or are we just, you know, checking each other's Facebook status? But then beyond that, God, you're pushing us today to ask that harder question. Am I enough? You're asking, am I enough? And I'm afraid if we were to answer honestly, someone would say, no, I want more. We'll sing it, all of you is more than enough. But do we mean it in our lonely moments? Because it's a tool that you're using to wake us up to the fact that only, the only way satisfaction will be found is in you. Draw us closer to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to move into um, a really beautiful, meaningful block of worship where we get the chance to connect with God. Can I encourage you to do that this morning? Don't just sing or not sing, or whatever you do during this time. Connect with God. Think about what the words are saying. The first song's tough to sing if you're going through tough stuff. Don't say the words out loud unless you mean it. And if you don't mean it, figure out why not and get it fixed. Let this be a really meaningful time of connecting with the one person in the universe who can be the only friend who will never let you down. Jesus, it touches our heart to know that this new life that you've given us to enjoy, the one with which we run free and sing and dance, this new life that you've given us, you began. And even in the appearance of absence of other people, it touches our heart to know that you who began this good work, you will walk with us step by step by step by step by step. In our moments of loneliness, of rebellion, of chaos. And you will walk with us step by step until we see you face to face. We appreciate that. In your name we pray. As we continue to worship, we're going to celebrate that deepest moment of loneliness that we never had to experience. If ever there was a time where there was a human being who called out and heard his own voice echo, hello, is there anyone out there? Is when Jesus waited in a garden, sweating blood, and 24 hours later as he hung on a cross and cried out to his father, why have you forsaken me? That moment when holiness had to be separate from the totality of sin. It's a moment that we were supposed to face. But praise Jesus, we don't have to. Our service will come now in service communion. Feel free to take it when you're ready and use this moment to, to meet with God.